Okay, uh, so without further ado, um, let's talk about some Mark 1. So like I said, when we think of life in the 21st century, we have an incredible amount of inventions that have changed the way we do life. When we think about phones, we think about computers, we think about those sweet hoverboards that kids in our community seem to be able to ride around uh, through all sorts of terrain. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But I'm also going to say there's an invention that probably doesn't come to mind when we think about the top ten most impactful inventions over the last couple hundred years, though you all use it on a regular basis. This invention, ladies sometimes have one in their purse. You all have them in your cars. You have them in your bathrooms and sometimes in your bedrooms as well and usually have multiple ones in each of your houses or apartments. This invention is the mirror. In an 1835, German chemist Justice von Liebig developed a process for applying a thin layer of metallic silver to one side of pane of a clear glass. This technique was soon adopted and improved upon and mass-produced mirrors came out of this invention. And before that, before this invention in 1835, mirrors were only available to the rich and the famous. Up until this point, 200 years ago, in 1835, we, as men and women, did not regularly look at ourselves. Sure, maybe you'd pass by a pond and see your reflection, but it was certainly not a part of our daily routine. So what does this have to do with Mark? We'll hold that thought and we'll come back to it in a minute. This is Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. And we all say, thanks be to God. Father, I do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the stories that fill our heads with a deeper understanding of who Jesus was and who you are. And Father, I I pray that you would help us in February of 2021 to have the words from the Bible, not only fill our heads, but pierce our hearts. We pray that you would join us, would grow us, would help us to understand our sinfulness and our deep need for repentance and how you offer grace through the cross to us. And Father, we pray for our church. We pray that you would continue the work that you have started at Redeemer and continue it for weeks and months and years to come, that we would be a church in and for our local community. And we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to get to do the work that you've called us to. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters, specifically in Texas and the parts of the country that have been hit hardest by these winter storms. We pray for the churches there, that they would be the hands and feet of Christ. We pray for opportunities for Christians to sacrificially love their neighbor as well. We pray for those who are without heat and without water that you would provide for them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's set the scene here for Mark 1. 
John the Baptist, the dude who ate the locust, kind of a wild man, is telling people about Jesus. He's down baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Jesus, we learn this from Matthew's Gospel, which sometimes gives us a little more details than the, the, the less detailed version in Mark. We understand that people had probably been in line to be baptized, and Jesus just hopped in that line. But you good folks at Redeemer, you know, you and I know that baptism is, is, is the, the, the role of baptism is the opportunity when we are baptized. We are talking about the gospel. Every time we do a baptism at Redeemer, we're talking about the gospel. That baptism is, 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 is in part a, an admission of guilt and the need for forgiveness. The Greek word baptizo is the same Greek word that's used when a cucumber was put into vinegar to become a pickle. It signified the change that happens with the forgiveness of sin. But this is weird because we know that Jesus, though he was fully human, he never sinned. So why did he get baptized? Well, the answer points to the incredible love of our Savior. He gets baptized not to signify his own need to be cleansed from sin, but to symbolically signify our need. He gets baptized to signify that on down the road, on the brutal day that he's nailed to that cross, Isaiah 53, verse 6, will become true. Old Testament helps us understand and highlight the New Testament. Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this baptism, which marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, was already looking ahead to the death. Like we talked about last week, that there is the the beauty of of Jesus' life and the healings, but the purpose of it all is, is heading towards a suffering on the cross on behalf of his people to save a sinful people like us. And so it's not just cool what happened, but it's also significant and unbelievably important to understand who came to watch. At this inauguration, at this initiation of Jesus into public ministry, the Holy Trinity is all present. We have one of the rare occurrences in Scripture where the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned together. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Did you see those three when we read it in verses 9 through 11? Verse 9, God the Son. Verse 10, God the Spirit. Verse 11, God the Father. In essence, three One in essence, three in persons, one God, three persons. And we, as a church, talk about this every time we initiate new or install new members into the life at Redeemer. The Nicene Creed. The Trinity, the triune God, is something we all claim to believe as we recite the Nicene Creed. Whenever a new member becomes part of the church, it's a central tenet of Christianity and essential to our faith, but it's rarely talked about. You'll see it in bold in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Three in one. What we see in the Trinity is what C.S. Lewis, the old Anglican theologian, calls the most beautiful dance. We see a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
which exudes joy and peace. And therefore, our most joyful, our most peaceful, our most hopeful life is not just understanding this dance, this relationship between the three parts of the Trinity, but joining in by way of invitation of Jesus. At the very moment when the Son, having been baptized, starts to come up out of the water, heaven splits open and the Spirit descends upon him. Jesus sees something resembling a dove coming towards him. Then God the Father is there, not only present, but proclaiming the powerful words, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This story, this beginning of Jesus' ministry, harkens back to another beginning. It's significant, and Tim Keller points this out, it is significant for us to understand that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were together in the creation of the world, Genesis 1-2, through the Father speaking the world into the existence, the Son, the Word, being present in what was being said. We learned that from John chapter 1, the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. The Trinity being present at creation and being present again is a parallel between the original creation and the new creation that Christ is ushering in to the world. Trinity is present because it teaches them and teaches us about the life that Christ is offering, the life that's inaugurated by Jesus. But they aren't just present to hang out and eat snacks and high-five each other. The Trinity is present in order to help us understand what this new creation, this new life that Christ is calling people into is all about. So let's dive into who the Trinity actually is. First and foremost, the Trinity is relational. Though it may make our brain hurt because uh, it, it, it's very difficult to get our heads around the doctrine of the Trinity, we need to take a second to understand this. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, like I said, one God, three persons. The Trinity is one of the many things in Christianity that sets it apart from any other religion. Not only is it three persons, but each person in the Trinity is seeking to honor and glorify the other commune with the other, serve the other, and defer to the other. God's life, God's very being, God's essence within the Trinity overflows with love for the other. To put it another way, the Trinity, where all of life and love comes from, is made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are pouring love into the other. This is love. And has been going on for all of eternity. We have to remember that before creation, before Genesis 1, God has always been. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so before the creation, God did not create us because He needed us. He did not create us because uh, he, he, was, uh, he was without something that he, long, he, he needed. He was complete in the Trinity. And he made us out of a love, an overflowing love that they had as the Trinity. And the gospel is that that we, those sinners, are invited into a relationship, into this perfect, loving, triune God through the work of Jesus. And this is what God is all about. Love lived out in relationships, and we were made by God in his image. Then we were made to be in relationship with God and with each other. By studying the Trinity, 
we study what true good relationship, good love looks like. A theologian named Miroslav Volf says this beautiful quote about the Trinity. And it's a little long, so stay with me. You can screenshot it if you want to read it all later. But I'll read it to us slowly here today. Because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of three persons, faith leads human beings into the divine communion. One cannot, however, have a self-enclosed communion with the triune God, for the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with this God is at once also communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith Since one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. The second point here is that being made in the image of God means that we are relational beings, relational creatures. You and I being made in God's image of God is a relational God. We being made in his image are made to be in relationship with others. Being in relationship with others the way God has designed it, though, is really, as you all know, is really difficult. Had Julian Castile, a couple from the church, when they got married last week, I always asked the couple to pick out the verses that we'll read at the wedding. And they picked out two beautiful verses, but one of them was from Colossians 3. And it says, this is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, he's talking about us as believers, as Christians. If you're a Christian in the room today, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This passage which is talking about how we are as Christians to love one another is also a beautiful picture of how the Trinity loves one another. Obviously, there's no need to forgive, but the idea that there is compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience, that is the beautiful picture of the perfect love that God has within the Trinity. It's a love that's not focused on self, but it's a love that is focused on others, and it's so countercultural to the world today. So back to that mirror. There's an author, a sociologist, that talks about mirrors and the impact of mirrors on society. This guy's name Ian Mortimer. And he argues that before the invention of the mirror, the concept of individual identity didn't really exist. Before mirrors, we thought of ourselves as a part of community. He goes on to argue that our identity before mirrors was tied up with the people we knew, the place we lived in. And this is why the medieval punishments of exile and banishment were such a huge deal. A tradesman thrown out of his hometown would lose everything that gave him identity. 
He'd be unable to make a living, borrow money, or trade goods. We see this actually in Kenya when we go do work over in the cities and towns of Kenya, the, 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 the deep impact that being a part of a community has. Mortimer goes on to say the very act of a person seeing himself in a mirror and being represented in a portrait as a center of attention. He says that this encouraged him to think of himself in a different way. He began to see himself as unique. Previously, the parameters of individual identity had been limited to an individual's interaction with the people around him and the religious insights he had over the course of his life. Thus, individuality, as we understand it today, just didn't exist before this. People only understood their identity in relation to the groups that they were connected to, their household, their manor, their town or parish, and in relation to God. And though we can't simply blame mirrors, for, for all of our relational issues in 2021. And I'm not here to say that mirrors are bad. We have them in our own house, uh, in our own bathroom. So it's not a, a knock on mirrors as a whole. It'd be unwise for us to really think about our focus on self. It would be wise to think about our focus on self and how it has negatively impacted our ability to be who God has designed us to be. People who are in relationship with God and healthy relationship with others. As a society, I don't think we've ever been more focused on the individual than it feels like we are today. We get our priorities flipped, turned upside down. Shout out Will Smith. We get our priorities jacked up in between our selfies, our race for likes, our singular focus on our seemingly singular focus on our careers and our bank accounts and our productivity, as Pastor Mac talked about so beautifully in the Ash Wednesday service, it's like we're carrying around a metaphorical mirror everywhere we go, checking ourselves, making sure we look good enough, making sure we measure up to what who we want to be seen as. But deep down, I know that we still long for the community that God is giving us in the vision of the Trinity and throughout the scriptures. I read this week, and stay with me here, I know this feels like a tangent, but I read this week that the video game business is actually now worth more than TV, music, and movies combined. $152 billion dollars. And honestly, when I saw this, this graph, somebody sent this to me, I was a little bit confused. But as I did some digging and asked some friends who play video games now, I began to understand. You see, when I played video games growing up, you either played by yourself or the people that were physically present with you. Whether it was our Nintendo or Super Nintendo or Nintendo 64 or when we got the, our PlayStation, it was a huge deal. It took an hour to load each game, but we were there for it. It was only, you were only able to play the people that were sitting right there with you. But nowadays, through this crazy thing called the Internet, you can play video games with people all over the globe. I've heard of this, but I just assumed, and I, you know, I'd had heard that they're connecting, you know, they're interconnected through the web. I just assumed that you end up playing some 12-year-old in Germany on some cool shooting game, but that's actually not what most people are doing. 
As I dug in, I realized that groups of friends, some made over video games, off their, their, their plan, what they, how, they, how they do these video games, they log in at the same time and set aside a, a time or a night or some every night to play these video games with each other. I listened to a podcast on this, and one guy said, it's really, at the end of the day, just my time to connect with my friends. In between shooting zombies, we're asking about each other's day how stuff is at work, and just being friends. Now, this is not an advertisement for video games or a knock on them, but hopefully you're seeing what I see. That $152 billion industry is leaning into our deep desire to be connected to each other. We deeply long for relationships, but we have to live a life as Christians, especially when we think about our life, that reflects these priorities. So what do we do? Seeing how important relationships are, healthy relationships are within the Trinity and and the vision God gives us for that throughout the Scriptures, I think first and foremost, we lean in to the season of the church that we are in called Lent. This season of the church calendar leading up to Easter, leading up to Good Friday, then to Easter Sunday, is an invitation to look at your life, which the Christian life can be summed up well as, do I love what God loves and hate what God hates? And in this case, have we, when we look at our life, have we prioritized growing in friendship, both with God and others, over our self-seeking activities? And where you see areas where you need to grow, Areas where you have been looking in the mirror instead of looking out to how do I love the community around me. That is our call, especially in the season of Lent, to be honest and repent. Repent of your individualism. Repent of your lack of vulnerability. Repent of prioritizing your selfish desires over loving relationships. So how do we do that? The source of our relational love for each other has to come from God. We learn of love by looking at the Trinity. So how do you learn to love your brothers and sisters? It's get to know the God of love and let him show you. As many of you know, we've got four kids at our house, four, six, eight, and ten. And my prayer, my wife's prayer, is that they grow up and love Jesus and love people around them with the sort of love that we just talked about from Colossians 3. And so we teach them. We talk to them a lot about this. We train them up, as the Bible says. And there's always ways we could do a better job of this, but it is a forefront of our goal is to help them understand and teach them what it is to be loving people that reflect the love of God to others. We teach them how to ask for things politely. We talk to them about serving each other. We remind them how to use kind words to each other, and we discipline them when they are out of line. But a few weeks ago, I noticed something, and it bothered me a lot. Diane and I were having an off day, which happens in marriage, uh, and it even happens with the pastor and the pastor's wife. We were having an off day, and we were in an argument over something. And I can't even remember what it was about, and isn't that, you know, almost always the case. But to be honest with you and to confess to you and be vulnerable with you, I said some things with a tone to Diane that were unloving and unkind. And I did it in front of our oldest two kids. And then one of our kids later that night, hours later, they said something sassy at bedtime. 
And as I went to correct her, I realized, I thought back to that moment a few hours earlier, not only my, the hypocrisy in my heart, but also the emptiness of my words. It hit me at that moment that my words, though impactful, hopefully that they are sinking in, the most impacting way I can teach my children about love is by displaying it to the people around me. I'm teaching my kids about love by how I treat my wife. If you're a single parent, you're teaching your kids about love, both by your words, it's not that they're insignificant, but even more significant is how you love your friends and your neighbors. So it matters what I say, and it matters that I explain love to my kids, but ultimately, the most instructive aspect of my life is not what I say, but how I live my life. And so when we think about how do we understand love and how do we understand how to love our neighbors as ourselves, we read and we we, we try to understand intellectually. But the most impactful way that we're going to understand love is by leaning in and getting to know the Trinity, getting to know God more fully. Just like my kids learn about love from witnessing me, we learn about love from witnessing who God is. We read about Christ in the Gospels. We read about him laying down his life. And we not only understand that from an intellectual standpoint, but then we also see how he's loved and cared for us. We take the time to write down and to make a gratitude journal to say, here's how Jesus has cared for me. And the more that sinks in, the more loving and kind we are to the people around us. So I invite you today to accept the invitation to the dance. If you are not a Christian, if this is new to you, recognize that that good and perfect love that God has, he's inviting you into a relationship to experience who he is through the forgiveness and grace of the gospel and having an eternal friendship with God. And not only a friendship with God, but a dance that we dance, a friendship with each other. The good news is that Christ, being rich in mercy, invites us, miserable sinners, as the Book of Common Prayer says, back into that relationship with him. And the more we grow, the more we, quote-unquote, catch his love for others, the more we see that our best life is a life of interdependent love with each other. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness and generosity to us. We're so grateful for the scriptures and the beautiful picture of love that is present at Christ's baptism. And may we understand more and more of the love within the Trinity. And may that change who we are, both in how we understand your love for us and the love we give away to others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.